welcome back to another episode of Equity Girls. I thought I'd just quickly come on here and give an introduction to Paige Doherty. She's a founding partner of Behind Genius Ventures. She is awesome. So wise beyond her years. Love listening to everything that she has to say. Like, wow. BGV is an early stage fund investing in growth-led companies at the future of work and play at the pre-seed to seed stage. Paige is also an author of a children's book called Seed to Harvest, which is a simple explanation of venture capital. I will pop that in the show notes. Also throughout the episode, she mentions some cool insights like Superhuman, Abraham Hicks, who I am going to check out right now. It's how to do segment intending. You can check that out on YouTube. And also she made mention of a TED Talk called Making the Impossible Possible. So if you're interested, go and check that out as well. Her book provides concise technical insights into venture capital and simplifies misunderstood venture capital jargon, not only for children, but also for adults. Paige has recently started her own podcast called Seed to Harvest. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking now because I've been rambling on, but listen in on this week's episode to hear how Paige started a VC fund in her 20s. Bye. Well, welcome back to Equity Girls. And we have an exciting guest here. We've got Paige Doherty, and she's the founding partner behind, um, a partner of, sorry, behind Genius Ventures, BGV. Um, so this is a sort of venture capitalism um, business. I'm just actually going to hand this straight over to you, Paige. Do you want to just give us a bit of an intro about this business and also I'm so fascinated because you are super young and well, c- compared to me obviously <laughs> um, and uh, those who listen to Equity Girls know that I just have this passion to really see these amazing young minds as coming up and just getting themselves deep into the realms of finance and investing and starting as soon as they can because basically I feel like I'm in the presence of the multi-multi-millionaires right now. Um, it's not there in your fingertips right now, but it's on its way because of the, the way you've just already just gotten into it and gotten start, uh, you know, got started so young. So I'm handing this over to you, Paige. Tell us about um, Behind Genius Ventures. Sure. Thanks so much for having me today, Amy and Julia. It's an honor to be here. And a um, bit of background on me. My name is Paige. I'm one of the founding partners at Behind Genius Ventures. We're an early stage venture firm investing in US and Canadian based companies at the future of work and the future of play. So a bit of my story before I started BGV, I studied computer science at university and honestly wanted to manage rappers when I was growing up. <laughs> um, I started going to these shows and couldn't afford to go to as many as I wanted to. So I started interviewing artists, would cold email their managers, be like, hey, I run this news outlet. At the time, pretty much my mom watched it. Um, shout out my mom. <laughs> um, but I really enjoyed the conversations I had with these creative minds with massive visions and found a similar spark in founders who shared similar creative visions about wanting to build a better future for themselves and um, and just solving important problems. And that transitioned into me getting interested in venture when I was exposed to it through a venture capital investment competition team at San Diego State. And 
after that, I became kind of obsessed. I spent like my nights and weekends researching venture. Most people are like out and about. And I was like, let me dig into portfolio construction. Um, I think it's a kind of a funny thing to be interested in. I remember I have written this illustrated children's book for adults. And I remember some like random comments on YouTube being like late stage capitalism at its finest, like showing young kids what, uh, (laughs) you know, like capitalism. And I was like, yeah, it's like important for people to understand the structures that govern and incentivize the world around us. And I want those options to be able to pull the purse strings to be available to a broader audience of people. And so Part of my broader mission with what I'm doing at BGV is to educate the next generation of venture investors. So some of the core values of BGV are community and transparency. And that's something that goes into the ethos of how we invest, how we evaluate deals, how we support founders, and how we ultimately educate the next generation of venture investors. So it's a bit more about me and my background, my broader goals, and I'm excited to dive in wherever you feel best. Wow. She's very impressive. <laughs> that is very <laughs> impressive. Just a quick, for those who um, haven't heard the term or um, really understand venture capitalism, it's mm-hmm. it's, start, it's basically a startup. It's, it's how people actually can raise capital or raise money to build businesses. So it's to, sim- to, to simplify the term. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's um, basically a pooled investment fund. So as a venture capitalist, you're actually not deploying your own money. You're meeting other people who become your investors, which are called LPs. And then you're investing that pool of money into companies at the stage, whether that's early stage, later stage, growth stage, and sector, which can refer to specific interests of yours that intersect with your background or spaces you think will be really beneficial in the future. And then narrows down into the types of founders that you want to work with as well. People have like different ways that they make investment decisions. I think the most important thing to understand is there's a million different ways to do venture at its core. You're kind of like a matchmaker between capital and, and great people with big ideas. So that's kind of like the way that that I like to think about it. No, I think that's awesome. And also back on to mention about your book, like, I know you said it is to educate the next generation of um, venture, um, like venture investors. Uh, but I also just think that it's just a great way to simplify the whole process and help you know even people, even people in their young adult or adult life, to even yeah, see absolutely. it like visually. And yeah, because you mm-hmm. you did show us a little bit um, back when you presented to us at Startman, and I thought it was awesome. Yeah, I have it like on my desk right now. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's, I, I wrote it like originally so I could explain to my parents like why I was so interested in venture. I think in the media it gets kind of a rap of being like uh, just very homogenous. And while the numbers historically have looked that way, I think there's like a lot of change coming in venture and. It's it gets a bad rep, but it's a very powerful tool that can be used with different incentives, and um, you know I think everyone applies it differently. But incredibly powerful tool, and um, it's definitely for the book is also useful for aspiring investors or entrepreneurs. And um, a lot of my friends that worked at startups didn't understand venture, and I think it was important to explain to them. It's like this is why the company that you're at is growing in the way that it is and and more around like the incentive alignment. I think it can help people connect with a bigger picture better. 
That's awesome, Paige. Um, it's a, it's a two pronged, well, actually, multi pronged sort of process, really, isn't it? Because it helps the business grow, develop. It creates culture within that company because you've got the people pulling, pour, you know, pulling their funds, but also their interest into that business. But then the investors have that other um, kickback, it, which is once that business becomes quite profitable, they actually have equity. They have some share, like they have ownership, right? So then they're going to be also benefiting if that takes off and does really well. So there's the end There's the end game as well from the investor's point of view. So mm-hmm. they're building something, they're part of something that they start, you know, it's like seeding that plant, planting the seed, sorry, to then creating this amazing tree and just sitting under it like that Warren Buffett sort of saying, mm-hmm. you know, um, someone's sitting in the shade today because they planted a tree a long time ago. And that's basically what you're doing with your money with this kind of thing, with this kind, these kind of projects basically. Yeah, absolutely. I think it also leads into the segue of like, how do you build trust when you're so young with these investors? Great this question. is, I think the most frequently asked question of me is how did I build trust at such a young age with, you know, esteemed venture investors? And I often ask myself this question. And I think the answer that I've come to is it was never about me and it was more about the broader mission to which I subscribe to is to like continue to educate the folks down the road. I think there's a lot of people in venture that are continuing to refine their own craft and either don't have like the time or the resources to be able to share their learnings with the broader public or don't feel incentivized to. And so I fill in a really unique gap in the ecosystem of trying to translate a lot of those learnings, both as a fund manager and and working with incredible investors uh, like Andy Wiseman at USV and um, and Jenny Lefcourt at Freestyle and Bain and Tribe and Bonfire. All these like different investment firms have very different ways of evaluating companies. And so I feel like that act of being a translator is something that drew a lot of trust in the beginning. And then just writing online, people had an opportunity to get to know me and my way of thinking way before they ever interacted with me. And the way that I start started doing that is in college, I was always the person that you would go to on campus if you had a question about like where you were, where you kind of like fit in on the, on the puzzle. And I remember I started writing pieces about how I was like doing cold email outreach to these managers because a lot of people were like, hey, I'm submitting these job things and they're not going anywhere. And I was like, oh, well, it's easy. Like you just hit up the person that posted the job on LinkedIn and like, hey, like, would love to learn more about what you're doing and like why you love doing it. And you'd be surprised by how many people respond. And I thought about like, how can I scale the impact that I'm having? A lot of that goes into creating content where frequently asked questions by other fund managers or aspiring investors, folks who are looking to get started in venture, just write about it. Um, and, And so in that way, I can scale both my time because I have more time to focus on things um, around like synthesizing information and then also scaling my impact is it's, it's funny. A couple of my posts around the essential guide to syndicates have gone viral in certain, in certain circles, like in, in there's a large Indian startup community. And my post about syndicates has gone like semi-viral there because it wasn't as much of an investment tool wasn't publicized as much before I started writing it. And now you see a lot of people spinning up syndicates, which is really 
cool. I think that's a structure that's become more democratized if, as people have talked more publicly about it and there's more education in it. Yeah. So impressive. I think even you, even that particular post, was that on Twitter? Because I was also chatting to someone um, within the uh, Startmate community and then they mm-hmm. I was like saying I didn't fully understand the process and they sent me that exact post and I, went for, like, <laughs> I was just reading the whole thing and then I got that's better so understand. <laughs> yeah, so even even other people just sharing it around because you explained it so well and like concisely. Um, mm-hmm. And for those who don't know what we're talking about, I'll try and post them in the show notes so you guys can check it out and have a read. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're all for, I mean, this is why we started the podcast. We're all for just um, educating and in you know helping people understand how to invest, get started in investing, um, invest in themselves, whether it be financially, but just also just learning about this. So, you know, we want to point people in the right direction. So we certainly will be pointing them in your direction um, for this as well, which is which is great. Now, we've got a, a list of questions and we always ask um, the first one being, what is your best and worst investment? That's a good question. I'll answer. Okay, so my best investment or one of my favorites is my first investment. One, because the founder took a chance on me as an investor. I was talking to him recently and I don't think he actually realized it was like my first investment that I was doing. I met him through the book that I was writing and and he had just reached out and been like, Hey, I love your approach to community and content. I'd love to pick your brain about what you're thinking about. And remember he pitched this idea of kind of like Spotify playlists for jobs. I was like, Oh, this is so cool. I, I love the intersecting themes of curation and multidimensionality and in, in hiring. And I, I, I had been introducing founders to investors for a while before this, but this one felt special. And I was like, I want to put, I want to like put my name on this one. I want this to be part of my track record. And so my friend was like, oh, you should just ask him for allocation in his latest round. And I was like, I don't really know what that means, but like, okay. Um, and so I was like, oh, is there any allocation left in your round? And he was like, oh, it's funny you say that. We just closed up. We have like the Excel Scout Fund and early folks from Stripe and Mixpanel. And I was like, oh, like super interesting. But he was like, love to make space for you. I think you have like a really unique approach and voice and, you know, here's 50K in allocation. So obviously as a recent college grad, I did not have 50K in my pocket. So I was like, okay, cool. Got to figure this one out real fast. Um, I have like two weeks to raise 50K or else I am not getting allocation in this deal. And I, this is how I ended up meeting my business partner, Josh. He had like just come off of doing a syndicate deal. We got introduced by someone who's now an investor in the fund. And he kind of walked me through the different logistics of, of raising a syndicate. And then I just started DMing people that followed me on Twitter that I had had previous conversations with. And they ended up investing. There were 17 investors in total on a 50K syndicate, which if you're familiar with syndicate structures is a lot. Usually some angel investors can write 50K checks themselves, but I took this community first approach to syndicates which at the time felt like a lot of paperwork, but I think was very core in developing that community first ethos, which has served us really well throughout developing the fund. And now seeing Palette grow into what it is today. And I went to go visit them in New York and now they have a team of like 12 plus people. They have an office and to see that growth and be able to grow alongside 
Kai, the founder, has been really incredible to see of like our growth together in parallel and be incentively incentivized in a way where I also get to benefit from his growth and I'm incentivized to help him as well. It has just been a very powerful experience. So that's one of my favorite investments that I've made. Um, one of my worst investments. Um, it's kind of hard to tell in venture. I think the feedback cycle is really long. So it takes like seven to 10 years to figure out what your best and worst investments are. And some can surprise you from, from what I've heard. But I think um, some of my crypto investing, <laughs> I would say great learning experience not great investing. Uh, I would say like my, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. My personal risk appetite is quite a lot higher than my risk appetite as a fund manager. I would say I'm a lot more responsible with other people's money. Um, And I ate into some crypto investments that have not done particularly well in the past three weeks, but they're good learning experiences. So I, you know, I feel like that it'll, it'll come back in, in good ways somewhere in the future. Yeah, crypto is taking a turn for the worse at the moment, but yeah. it should be fine. I think like the, the fundamental technology beneath it um, is strong and solid, but it's just a bit more volatile because it's on the OMID markets. Like in, in venture, it's, there's no sell button, really. Like the company either goes to zero or it exits and you don't really have a say in that. Um, so you're just along for the ride after you make that initial um, conviction driven investment. So I much prefer that type of investing to public markets. Yeah, for sure. Do you find some of those, cause I've been investing, my husband and I have invested in quite a few startups mm-hmm. and some of them have gone really poorly mm-hmm. and some have gone fantastic. So, and actually one's about to be listed Oh, awesome. That, That's great. Yeah. Congratulations. When you get to that point and the value and you're one of the five, like we're top 5% shareholders of that business because we came in the very, very early stages. Mm-hmm. That's incredibly exciting because all of a sudden that small amount that you invested is now a very large amount and it's like, yeah, absolutely. They knew what they've done with the money. They've built a company, they've built a culture, they've built something and now we own a big portion of that when it becomes listed it's like we can now dilute some of that mm-hmm. liquidate a little bit actually live a bit more you know so there's actually a payoff for that sort of investment if it does get listed yeah 100 i think the important thing to know about startups is 90 percent of them will fail but the one percent that go on to spectacular returns will make up all of your losses and so I'd say in venture, the like indexing is the most important. So a, por- a thoughtful portfolio construction across many companies. And, um, I, you know, I, I really like being in an early stage because you get to see the growth like all the way through. Um, but yeah, that's that's awesome. And congratulations. It must be super exciting to watch them go through it that whole process. It is pretty exciting. But I mean, I don't, as I said, it is a huge risk. And, and so we've talked about this in on the podcast in the past is that you can actually someone can invest into startups through a fund so mm-hmm. they're and diversify and actually get in that situation where they're not sort of putting chunks of money in all sorts of different small businesses and just hoping and praying that it all works yep. so you know that's that's the beautiful thing about you know what you're doing and what other fund managers are doing that really focus in on that space 
Yeah, I think that the diversification of investing in funds is a strategy that's happening also across like other venture funds. So a bunch of larger venture funds are coming much down market because a lot of the returns uh, are coming out of that like earliest stage. And so larger funds are looking to index across different fund managers so they can see deal flow and make direct investments in the companies that are doing best out of the portfolios which is a really interesting trend and I think will continue to happen, which will, in my eyes, enable a lot more fund managers at the earliest stages to run like relatively smaller venture arms, uh, you know, in like the five to $25 million range, which has traditionally been considered micro VC. I think there'll be a lot more folks in those positions making investments and hopefully that that will continue to diversify the ecosystem as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting insight. Yeah. Um, Paige, I'm just curious. So for, for aspiring founders, like as a VC, what's the best advice you could give to them looking to source VC funding? Um, don't build your company for a venture capitalist. <laughs> the, the key is to really focus on the customer demographic and the specific pain point that you want to solve not to build a company that can get venture funding. I think when you really get to the problem at its core and you build a business around that, the venture funding will like find its way to you. Um, and to like continue to dig into that customer problem and then work on your skills as a translator. So I think it's really helpful to try and translate your idea to someone who's totally outside of the space, whether that's a friend or a sibling or, or something like that. Work on translating what the unique value proposition is to someone that's totally outside of your area of expertise. And practicing that will make pitching a venture capitalist a lot easier because a lot of us don't have specific expertise in certain areas. And so we're looking to the founders to gain insight onto the specific market that they're building in. And so I think spending as much time as possible with your customer demographic and then being able to synthesize and translate that information into a, a understandable from like a 30,000 foot point of view. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And yeah, they talk a lot about that in the startup ecosystem about trying to explain your problem and like mm-hmm. solution really well. It's super hard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really hard, especially trying to get it in, down into like one sentence and just trying to explain it in late laymen. Oh my God, never say that. Yeah, layman's terms. Layman's terms. <laughs> um, another question, give, speaking of, you know, um, problem solving and whatnot, what are the key lessons you've learned from running your own fund? Because um, it takes a lot of guts to, <laughs> to just even start a business, let alone you're dealing with um, other people's businesses and money. Mm-hmm. So that there's a lot of there. I mean, we've, you've covered a lot of that as well in this podcast, but there's a lot to factor into that. So what are your key lessons in this? Um, the first one I would say to be would be to focus on the process and not the outcome. I think as I've gone on this journey and received like different accolades and things like that, that's been super exciting. But one of the things I think is the best outcome for me is to continue to learn both as an investor and an individual about where like for example as an investor like where the boundaries are for like different companies that I want to invest in and like what am I not I think a lot of people focus on what I am um, or what you are and I think that there's very 
untapped value in focusing on what you're not and what you're not good at and being very blatant about that and just being like, nope, this not a fit for me. It doesn't line with my energy, doesn't line with my interests. I'm good. And like doing it in a very thoughtful manner. So that thoughtful no has become really a big lesson that I've learned is how to communicate decisions in a way that benefits all parties and doesn't make anyone feel bad. It's very tough writing past emails and it's a lot of your job as a venture capitalist. Um, you know, you're going to, we say no to 98% of the companies that we meet with. We've, we, we've invested in 2% of the companies that we've seen basically. Um, and so saying no in a thoughtful manner, focusing on process, not outcome. And then the third is that the investment process is just that it's a process. You can strive for perfection. You can strive to iterate on your craft, but you're never going to have a perfect investment process. And I think some things are surprises, like outcomes are surprises sometimes. And it takes real patience to understand that. And so I, I think that's been like a very important part of my learning as well. Basically, sort of to me explained one key thing that I'm always challenged by is that's creating boundaries. Mm -hmm. And that's very powerful the position to, to, to sort of stand in on a regular basis. And you have to do it in such intricate ways with, you know, multiple businesses. How many, mm -hmm. how many um, businesses are you, is, is in the fund? How many startups have you got? Right now we've invested in, we made 16 core checks and a handful of discovery checks when we were like earlier on in our journey. So I'd say I've definitely grown through like each investment decision. One great piece of advice we got from an investor of ours was, you're going to break rules in your like assumptions of what you want to invest in. So when you make an investment that breaks those rules, like write that down and like think about, is that part of your boundary that you want to keep? Is that, is that a rule that you assumed from other people's investing strategies that fits who you are as an investor? Because everyone has like a different way of doing it. And sometimes you can follow someone else's advice, but there's, when we talk about boundaries, like one of the things how, how I've shifted is being a very curious person. I feel like I used to be kind of like a ball of Play-Doh and you just like pick up all of the pieces of Play-Doh in your wake and you're like, awesome, massive, like sponge Play-Doh vibes. And now it's like communicating with so many different people and different like energies. I think becoming more critical in the advice that I absorb um, and apply in what I'm doing and how I'm showing up has been very important to like be more critical about that and like express my boundaries and do it in a way where um, Abraham Hicks has this like really interesting thought process around segment intending. So like as you go forward either in a day or a week or, you know, maybe you're just like doing dishes, it's like, what do I intend for this segment? And to like intend to be a person who is like curious and transparent or to be a person that is like open to listening and to continue to affirm that that is who you are as an individual and make choices on what you want to do with like specific segments of your life has been really interesting to kind of like dive into and apply to my own life. Um, so I think a lot about that like segment intending piece is like, as soon as you reaffirm those boundaries, the decision gets less uncomfortable every time you say it. So every time you're like, this doesn't fit my energy, this isn't a fit for me, like those decisions get faster and you get more decisive. And I think ultimately more in alignment with 
who you are as a as an individual and yeah so like in terms of determining those boundaries I know you were mentioned Abraham Abraham Hicks <laughs> um which I'm actually going to yeah I'm going to go check that out because I haven't actually I've got one of her books so. yeah that sounds really interesting but in terms of like actually determining what those boundaries are do you think a lot about that or just sort of roughly write them down um because I think in terms of articulating what those boundaries actually are for you as an individual because sometimes you're in a situation where it's come on and you know okay this is crossing my boundaries here but I think sometimes yeah. until you actually articulate those and write them down what they are and and it's not until you're in that situation that you know that it's being crossed. So how do you go about doing that? I think the way that you articulated it is how I've experienced it. It just takes time and experience and checking in with yourself to see what aligns with who you are, like energetically from an identity perspective. For example, the process of fundraising I see as a gentle unfolding of identity where you're, you get to tell your story For example, we had like 1,700 calls. I got to tell my story 1,700 times. If I was repeating something 100 times over and it didn't feel like part of my story that I wanted to share or was important or was impactful, then I took it out. And so telling your story over and over again, and I think this is a really important thing to do as a student is to like meet a ton of new people and continue to iterate on what are those like core components of you that are really important and you want to like show up in a space as, um, these can be your values or your interests or what you do and don't do, um, continuing to unfold those layers and be like stronger in what that core of yourself is, is like kind of how I've pieced it together. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like the secret is there is no secret. It's just like continued experience. Sounds to me, I mean, going back to bringing Abraham Hicks into this conversation <laughs> and you've, you've talked about alignment and energy and, and this is the stuff that we talked about um, and you've done one of my courses, Julia, on the money mindset stuff. So when you're talking alignment and energetic and, and, and feeling, you're basically sharpening your intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, exactly radar basically so you have basically sharpened your intuitive radar to then filter what is right and what is wrong not right that doesn't feel good in Mm -hmm. making these decisions in your business so you're very intuitive by the sounds of it too which has helped you propel to where you are right now yeah which is incredible because that's the that's the amazing part of that kind of work yeah i think that's what's really interesting and it's specifically been something i would say historically that's been more closely tied to like the feminine nature and that can be present in men, women, non-binary, I would say, but it's very been very closely tied to like feminine nature. And I think a lot of people use it in different ways, both as individuals and investing, but I want to be really transparent about that's a key aspect of myself as an investor is I lean very heavily on my intuition and one of my largest jobs over my lifetime is to continue to hone that intuition and get very specific. Um, I, I like to think it's like a sharpening of your like decision knife is like, you know, the more strokes across the like whetstone to like sharpen your intuitive nice knife to make better and clearer decisions, like the like you know, closer you can get to the core of who you are. So it's kind of how I think about it. That's such an awesome analogy. I'm really going to take that on board. I'm going to take that sharpening, mine. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, so, Paige, 
I wanted to ask a question because I'm I'm really curious about this particular. Um, I think about this a lot, but do you think that it's you need a technical co-founder for a startup to be a, a success? Um, I am reading the book Super Founders at the moment, and he seems to assume based off his like analyzing lots of different companies, um, not. But I'd like to get your thoughts. Hmm. That's a great question. I think a lot of it's actually really interesting. The only people that have asked me this question have been women, which is so interesting that I've met a lot of non-technical male founders and they've never apologized or like mentioned it in my conversations with them. But specifically with women, I think this like continues to come up and I don't know why, but I feel like with other investors, it's like a mantra that seems to pop up more with women because I've never heard like a guy that I've talked to ask about this. So I don't, I don't think you need a technical co-founder. I think you need, if you're a creative person, I think it's really useful to have someone like if you're a creative visionary, I think you need to have someone that executes and that executionist, not executionist. (laughs) um, That's definitely not the right word. Um, That like, um, <laughs> uh, that, that person that carries out your vision, it depends on what you're building. It can either be a growth person where they're working on like the specific marketing strategies or like a technical person. I do think a lot of companies now are very tech, tech heavy. And so I think it's important to have someone that can carry out your vision from a technology standpoint. Um, but if you find that person that can carry out your vision in a, in a different manner and can hire people that can build it from a technical perspective. Um, I don't know. I've, I've never thought about it in our investment decisions around like not having a technical co-founder. Yeah. I mean, it's never something I've actually thought about until I sort of came into the ecosystem a little bit more and everyone kept talk, mentioning it. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I guess you're right. Like you can always hire technical, um, you can always hire engineers who can build your yeah. vision. I think Having technical fluency can be important though, like the ability to communicate your idea in technical terms where a team can uh, basically like take what you're saying and like build the boundaries of the product around it or they're like deeply involved in your customer conversations as well. But it's never been a blocker for us when we've been making investments. I mean, I think it's always something like if you come from it from a perspective of like a growth mindset, it's always something you could learn even if you're just learning the basics just to get the underlying understanding of what's actually being yeah. built like you can go and do a real basic course for coding in mm-hmm. flutter or something well, like I think that. this is why i'm so excited by like no code tools is i think that there are platforms out there that allow you to build minimum viable products without having to have a technical background for example like bubble or Airtable. If you're building something where you're like connecting disparate information, connecting like disparate people, you can like build the 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 building blocks of it. You can use other software tools to kind of find out if that actually solves a problem for your customer demographic. Yeah, no, I 100% agree there. So another question that's sort of come to mind that you mentioned in one of your articles and I was reading it. It was an article called How to Have Intro Calls That Don't Suck. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I read it and I, I read that you actually asked a particular question and you suggested that people should 
ask that if they need some, you know, icebreakers. So I'm going to ask it back to you. Um, did you ever take a detour in life? If so, how did it inform your choices afterwards? Such a good question. <laughs> I haven't revisited that blog post in a while. Um, did I take a detour in life? I feel like honestly, my whole life has been a bit of a detour. I feel like I stumbled into so many things that I didn't, it was never on my my roadmap to do. When I was younger, I wanted to be an author. So I would say like writing Seed to Harvest was an incredible step in in that direction. I would love to produce like a long form, either like novel or, or nonfiction piece um, at, at some point. So yeah, honestly, like been a lot of long detour <laughs> very very fruitful one um but yeah it's it's been interesting I think the way that I think about building knowledge is like you have these like little nodes and they build up into mountains and like specific areas and I think my unique capability has always been to kind of be like a Tarzan like swinging between mountains and connecting disparate ideas And that involves taking a lot of detours because sometimes you're going to be on a mountain that's like totally new to you and you're like really involved and invested. And then when you feel like you learn enough to be competent in that skill, you'll kind of want to like take your mind and like swing to another mountain. So it's been a fun life full of detours. I love that analogy. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm so going to take that. That is awesome. I'm I'm going to be jumping on my vine just because, I mean, I'm always taking on projects and just my complaint, which is ridiculous because it's absolutely silly is that I'm so busy. But it's actually, no, you know what? I'm just going to swing from this vine to that vine Mm -hmm. and keep building my mountains. I love that. I keep thinking, how do you fit it all in? Do you feel overwhelmed at times with all the work that you're doing? Um, Because I'm the type of person to also take (laughs) on, to overcommit. And then I end up, I don't feel overwhelmed, but it just ends up, becoming a lot yeah actually uh, a mentor of mine told me that you always have enough time if you're making good use of it and that mentor was the box that my kitchen magnet timers came in (laughs) and I thought it was profoundly deep for a kitchen magnet timer box but I think it's quite true I just have continued to explore my interests and I think When you think about feeling too busy, sometimes you can be spending your time doing things that you feel guilty doing. So for example, when I was in school and I was like, oh, I want to like spend time reading this book, but I have homework. And so I'd be like, okay, let me do like what I have to do. And then I'll do something that I enjoy. And I think as I've grown older, I've begun to realize that you shouldn't save those moments. Like you should work them into your day and not feel guilty about them. Like I definitely spend time scrolling on TikTok, but I'm like synthesis of information. I'm swinging from my different mountain vine. And I think that feeling like not guilty about other things that I was doing made me feel less busy because I was like, oh, like, you know, as you're doing your segment intending and you're like, I'm intending to do X, Y, and Z during this time, like, I'm not going to think of all the other things that I have to do in this time. I'm just going to like enjoy my time reading. I'm going to enjoy my time gardening. I'm like not going to do other things. And then you go to your next thing. Um, my uh, friend helped me set up this like task management plan that was really helpful. Basically, like whenever I think of a task I have to do, instead of just like thinking about it, I like... He helped me make this like iOS shortcut on my iPhone. It's like add task and it sends me an email and it's like, oh, okay, like, you know, bring this book to the post office or like send this email to this person. And it just goes like whoosh. 
into my inbox. I don't think about it anymore. And I'm like, okay, when I get to a point where I'm reaching a different segment, I'm going to go back to my inbox and like, look at the tasks. And I'm like, if I can do it in two minutes, I'll do it now. If I can't, I'll, you know, snooze it. If it's something where it's like pay my water bill, I'm going to like make sure that I put a reminder like halfway in between the time that I have to do it. So it's like, I don't have a full inbox all the time. Things are snooze. So they're like, they're in the future that for future page to worry about. So that's definitely helped me feel like a lot less busy. So like not feeling guilty and then just like cataloging the things that I have to do so that I can do them in the time where I am free. Is there a particular app that you use that does that? Is it to-do list? Um, no, it's it's just like a custom iOS shortcut. And so it's like, basically, uh, I can show you. Okay, so I have like two different ones. So one is new task and it says like, what's the subject? And then it'll send me like an email. It's like an iOS shortcut. So like do the, if you just Google like create new task shortcut, um, But when I learned about this task management system, it was like the most important thing you can do is just like capture things that you're thinking about because it's really hard if you're just walking around all day with your to-do list in your head, getting it out and like capturing it, like just the fastest way possible so you can get rid of that thought and like use your head for like other important things. Um, And then I have another one called like note and this one's like an insight. And so if I'm like, if I have a thought and I have an insight or I have an analogy that I like, I'll just like write it in insight, add like a source if I want to. And then I'll, I'll, I set aside time on like Fridays to like review it. And I'm like, see if there's any patterns in there, but that allows me to kind of like both free my mind of things that I need to do that are tasks that like the internet can remind me of. I use superhuman as well. That's really helpful. Um, and then also kind of frees my mind up to have like my little idea soup of all these different ideas that I'm trying to like play with and um, and connect. Wow. Because I've just started using Todoist, which is a similar thing where you're just on your phone and you just download. Because like, I'm always doing that. I'm in my head and I'll be walking home from dropping my daughter off to kindy and um, I get overwhelmed because that's what happens, right? Oh, yeah. Because you've got all of these things and then you get really anxious, sit at the desk and then you freeze and go, I didn't even know where to start. Like, yep. shit, I've got too much to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not healthy. <laughs> no, you just make a list of them and then you like trust trust your system and it frees up like your brain a lot. I'm trying. Yeah, that's, I, I read an article just the other day on this very topic that's and that awesome. was it. Just like throw the, uh, throw the tasks into the system and then when you're ready, at least they're there and you're not going to forget because they're there. And when you have the time, you can do, go through them and mark them off. Yep. I had that same problem where I kept thinking of new things that needed to get done and I was feeling overwhelmed because it was taking up so much brain space. Um, so I, yeah, I started doing the same thing, but I think that's really helpful having those little, I didn't realize you could write it and it's sent to your inbox. That's kind of handy. Cause then you can just go through your emails at a later date when mm-hmm. you've got the time. And, and it like, it has like a little emoji that's green. So I know that like, those are tasks that I need to do. And, and so I'll just like go through my inbox one at a time. And then like during, you know, in the, in the, in between stages, I'm like, okay, cool. I need to do like X, Y, and Z things. Yeah. I think that's. Awesome. I'm going to definitely take that one on board and check it out because I even like the insights ones because I always forget about when I have little ideas that come up in my head and I'm like, oh, I'll think about it later and remember later and then maybe I'll forget about it. Your brain is like kind of bad. Like the memory, bad. My memory has gotten like a lot worse. I feel the same. I definitely feel that. 
It is what it is. All right. So we've got two more questions to get out. Um, I think I feel like you're just giving us such good nuggets. So um, oh my gosh, Paige, you are so wise beyond your years. <laughs> I'm loving everything that you're sharing today. So, oh, so I'm actually going to go away and implement some of this stuff. Soon. Yay. I love your critical thinking. Thank so you. Awesome. You've sharpened your intuition. That's really what's driving some of your decision makings. I love the idea that you sort of do the Tarzan thing from, from one mountain to the other when you've, you know, and building your ideas into sort of those mountains. And now how you break down your, your you know, to manage your headspace, mm-hmm. which is really important, right? We've all got to manage our headspace, especially when you have such a brilliant mind and are doing so many great things for, um, you know, for the future of this world. I believe that's really what, you know, this kind of work is, right? You're building businesses that are going to benefit in some way, shape or form, not only financially. And that's the beautiful thing about investing at the end of the day. Um, so, wow, I just, I'm like, you guys have to listen to this podcast and definitely be following Paige because this girl knows her stuff. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, so for someone, because I think for a lot of people, like it's really just about overcoming those barriers because they're just too afraid to chase their dreams. So, mm-hmm. and, and you've just gone ahead and just bulldozed all of those fears and insecurities. Yeah. I think one of my like strengths is just like having the audacity to ask I feel like people are like, how did you do this? And I was like, I just asked, <laughs> like, and then they said yes. Um, but like, you can ask some pretty crazy things. There's like a really good TED talk about um, making the impossible possible. And it was just like, this woman would gather up 20 people in a room and just be like, what's your craziest, wildest dream? Like, what do you want to do? And then she would ask someone else in the room, like, oh, can you help them? And it was basically like, of the 20 people she asked, like basically all of them were able to accomplish these things that they thought were impossible just with like the help of other humans. So I think at the end of the day, it's like, it's never about you. It's never about me. It's about like what the community can do together and you just finding the strength to ask the questions that you think are doing impossible things. That is, that's a great advice. Piece of advice as well. So we've got two questions at lift and we're going <laughs> to wrap this up. So um, go ahead, Julian. No, you go. Well, I just wanted you sort of a similar question you were just asking, Julia, was um, what advice would you give for aspiring founders? I mean, it's the fact that you've jumped straight into it, but if someone was looking to go into or after sort of um, VC funding, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give them if they were approaching you? I think one of the things is like to know yourself. Um, I wrote something on this, but it's, it's, I called it like on finding true north, but I think like the path to self-discovery is really important to building a company that aligns with what you're building and like your broader mission. And I think in a increasingly competitive talent market in an increasingly competitive building company environment, there's nothing that is more compelling to work for than someone with an incredibly strong mission. And that over anything, I think like a lot a lot of people in my generation are very driven by impact and yes, they want to make good money and yes, they want to have equity. But at the end of the day, a lot of them are motivated by impact over dollars. So I think doing a, you know, a process of self-discovery where you think really deeply about what your broader mission is and what, what role that you want to play in the ecosystem to best play out that mission, whether that's as an employee, as a manager, as a founder, as an investor, 
like really dig deep inside yourself and like find what you want to do. Um, and I think talking to other people can be really helpful for that. Cause it's like, Oh, that doesn't sound like what I want to do or like, Oh, okay. Interesting. Like, let me take this little Lego block from what you said and like incorporate it into my story. So yeah, just like know yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's an awesome piece of advice as well. Um, all right. Last lucky last question. It's like our um, closing question that we ask all the listeners that come on the show. Uh, what's the one thing you can't live without? This could be an app, a person, something you implement in your everyday life or morning routine. Um, probably my family. Yeah. Yeah. I've made a lot of decisions to like forego opportunities to stay closer to them. And that's one thing I, I feel very strongly about and I always have. So yeah, my family. That's a good answer. <laughs> awesome. Well, I have to hop, but this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I had such a great time and definitely look forward to hearing from the folks that listen to this, if they learned anything. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we, we've had an absolute ball having you on. Thank you so much for your time. I know your time is precious. You have given us so many amazing nuggets. So, and I can't wait to get this out into the world so that everyone can hear how amazing you are, Paige. I think I have five tabs open right now. Like I'm going <laughs> to just come and look at everything you mentioned. I love that. You're inspired, Julia. This is fantastic. <laughs> That's the idea. Thanks, Paige. I'm really glad you came on today um, and we really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks so. so much for having me and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening today. Before you go, I want to remind you that everything discussed is general in nature. We are unaware of your personal circumstances, so the information we have discussed may not be right for you. It is important to consider your personal situation and seek financial advice from a licensed advisor. Amy Baker is an authorised representative of Lifestyle Asset Management Propriety Limited, Australian Financial Service Licence 288241. Recap Advice is a trading name of Recap Enterprises Propriety Limited, ABN 22607854240, a corporate authorised representative of Lifestyle Asset Management, AFSL 288241. I would also like to acknowledge the Bidigal and Gadigal people who are the traditional custodians of this land. I would like to pay respects to the elders, both past and present, of the Bidigal and Gadigal nations and extend that respect to other Aboriginal pe people. Thank you for listening and don't forget to share the love by sharing this podcast. Have a wonderful day wherever you are.